Our great God invites us to worship him in his presence. So let's begin with a reading from his word in Psalm 46. I'm going to begin in verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, Pillar Church, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we come together today in the presence of you and your church that's meeting all around the world to worship you, eager to worship you in response to your gracious call to us in your word. And we thank you for making this possible for us through Jesus, who has reconciled us forever and solidified our place in your family. God, this morning we acknowledge that we do not come to you um, sufficient in ourselves to be holy as you are holy. You've called us to something greater. And Lord, as our hearts are carrying burdens throughout the week that we need relief from. We need the healing touch of your spirit. So may our worship this morning to you, may it be pleasing in your sight. God, may you meet our needs this day. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who delightfully does all that we ask in your name, so that he might bring you glory. Amen. Good morning. Let's continue our lesson in the New City Catechism, one of the ways that we continue to learn about and talk about and be able to even pray through some truths of God's word. And so we're on questions, we're reviewing question six today, and then we'll do question seven. And I brought this handsome guy, my son Hudson, up here to help us out. So we're going to review question six first. Both of these, question six and seven, are so good, so pivotal, so much uh, in, in these answers that require some more discussion. So let's start with question six. Uh, this is a review. How can we glorify God? Do you want to read that? Pull it off with vigor. I like that. We glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and obeying his will, commands, and law. Yeah, perfect. Uh, For question seven, this will be our new question of the week. Uh, We'll start off with the scripture. And the scripture is Matthew 22. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so we'll start off with you, Hudson, without looking at the screen. Hudson, what does the law of God require? That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Perfect. Um, You'll notice two different versions up here when uh, some of our guests help us, is that this is the full version that we're going through together, and then the kid version is a uh, shorter version, easier to memorize for kids. But let's ask you right now, Pillar, 
What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. I hope that's uh, part of your discussion at home. If you need some help, we've been passing out these every, uh, every week, but now we'll just keep them in the back on that bookshelf back there. Please, as a family, we bought one per family for you for the full version and for the kid version. Josiah, can you hold that up? The, there's the simplified version. They're both, both back there. Please take one as our guest. Thanks, guys. Would you guys stand and join us in worship through song this morning? And let's declare um, the glory of God in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we will glorify him wherever we're planted in the world. So let's sing this morning. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. Sing, all your ways are good. All your ways are sure. All your ways are good, all your ways are sure, and I will trust in you alone, higher than my sight, high above my life, I will trust in you alone, where you go, where you go, I'll go, where you stay, I'll stay, when you move, I'll move. I will follow you when you love I love how you serve I'll serve if this life I lose I will follow you yeah I will follow you light unto the world light unto the world light unto my life I will live for you will find all I need in you alone, in you alone. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Whom you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. If this life I lose, I will follow you. my soul in you there's joy unending joy and I will follow where you go I'll go where you stay I'll stay when you move I'll move I will follow you and whom you love I love how you serve I'll serve if this life I lose I will follow you where you go, I'll go. How you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Whom you love, I'll love. How 
you serve, I'll serve If this life I lose, I will follow you Yeah, I will follow you And where you go Where you go, I'll go Where you stay, I'll stay When you move, I'll move I will follow you sing God of this city you're the God of this city you're the king of these people you're the Lord of creation you are you're the light in this darkness you're the hope to the hopeless you're the peace to the restless you are and there is no one like our God. There is no one like you, God. Greater things have yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come. Greater things are still to be done here you're the lord of creation the creator of all things you're the king above all kings you are you're the strength in our weakness you're the love to the broken you're the joy in the sadness you are there is no one like our God. There is no one like you, God. Greater things have yet to come. And greater things have yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this city. Where glory shines from hearts alive with praise for you, love for you in this city. Greater things have yet to come, greater things have still to be done in this city. Greater things have yet to come, greater things still to be done here there is no one like our God and there is no one like our God there is no one like you God greater things have yet to come greater things still to be done in this city where glory shines from heart to life with praise for you love for you in this city greater things have yet to come greater things Still to be done in this city. 
greater things are still to be done here. Amen. Power button helps. All right, uh, brothers and sisters, we're going to be reading from three books today for our scripture. We're going to be starting in the book of Genesis, then Jeremiah, and then 1 Peter. So uh, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now we're going to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. First Peter, uh, chapter two, verses eleven through twelve. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ben. All right, family, you can go ahead and have a seat, get comfortable. How y'all doing this morning? Good. Good. It's good to see you. I enjoy spending this time with you. Uh, my wife and I, my family and I had a great uh, time away a week ago. Um, our vacation culminated last Sunday morning, last Monday, and uh, we, we worshiped with another, uh, another expression of God's family on this island last Sunday, but it's really good to be, really good to be back with you, our family here. Let's pray and we'll get right down to work. Father, we're coming to you as your children this morning, uh, asking for help. I need help. Uh, we all need your help. We're totally dependent upon you. Please help us. Jesus, you are our older brother and our rescuing king. You are the hero of our family, and we ask that you would work in this time and be big in this time. Help us to see how you are uh, our hero and you're our rescuing king. We love you and we ask that you would increase our affection for you and our loyalty, our allegiance to you. And Holy Spirit, we are completely dependent upon your life-giving and life-sustaining work. Please, again, just give life to our hearts this morning. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that receive and respond to your gospel appropriately. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we begin a two-part series entitled, Seek the Welfare of the City, 
a sojourner's guide to justice in an unjust world. Now, injustices abound in our broken world. That's no surprise to anyone. And while each injustice in our world has God's attention and should receive ours, this series will focus specifically on racial injustice. Dr. Tony Evans, in his book, Oneness Embraced, writes this. He says, the racial problem continues to be the one dominant area of failure, of our failure as a nation. Nowhere is this more evident than in the history and contemporary reality of black-white relations in the culture at large. And then notice what he says, in the culture at large and in the church in particular. G.K. Chesterton, a long time ago, said this. He said, it isn't that we can't see the solution. We can see the solution. We have the gospel. God has spoken so clearly to us through his revelation. It's not that we can't see the solution. It's that we don't have eyes to see the problem. And this week, it may feel like we work more on seeing the problem. That's okay. That's our intent this morning. And next week, we will focus more on the solution I just want you to have a sense of, of where we're going and how it, it might feel. John Perkins wrote a book not too long ago. It just came out this year, I believe. It's entitled One Blood. I'm going to quote a couple people this morning. He's the only one I, I wanted to show you a picture of John Perkins. This guy is 90 years old now. His mother died when he was a young infant. His brother was uh, shot and killed by police officers in Mississippi when he was a young child. He himself was beaten to within just an inch of his life and then imprisoned unjustly in Mississippi. But there is nothing but forgiveness and grace that flows out of this man's mouth. The gospel has radically reshaped his heart. It's just beautiful. But check this out. Uh, and he's a hero. He's like a, a, a grandfather uh, to me. I'd love to meet him in person. See the picture on the left? He enlisted in the army right out of high school. Do you know where that picture was taken? Right here, baby. Right here. Yeah, he served in the army right here during the Korean, uh, right around the era of the, of the Korean War. So it's John Perkins, and this is what he writes. He says, racism still haunts us. And by us, guys, he means our family, the church. He's, he's not talking about the culture and the cultural problems. He's talking about our own family. It haunts us. No family likes to publicly admit haunting, Right? You coach your kids not to tell those stories in public. But we need to be different. We need to be able to publicly admit our hauntings and lament them and confess them when appropriate. But where do we start with this? Where do, where do we start? Where does our journey need to begin? A pastor in Philadelphia by the name of Eric Mason, um, you may know him. He authored a book a couple years ago by the name of uh, Woke Church. And he wrote this in his book. He says, it, talking about where to begin with all of this, he says, we have to start with identity. We can't start with pragmatic stuff. We have to start off with who God is and who we are, because what we do flows out of who we are in him. He's right. And he goes on to say, if we don't start with who we are in the living God, we are no more than social activists and speakers without any power or any strength for long-term systemic change. And so we need to start with our gospel identity. Let's do that. 
And we're, we're well positioned to do so because we just finished our series, Counterculture Kingdom, in which we focused a whole lot on our king and his character. And here is one of the identity statements flowing out of that series from Psalm 33. He loves righteousness and justice. That's who our father is. We have a dad who absolutely loves righteousness. He loves justice. He hates injustice. And he's actively working righteousness and justice through the inbreaking of his kingdom into the brokenness of our broken kingdoms. Now, that's who our dad is. There are a ton of identity statements in scripture that we could go to right now to focus on who we are in light of who our father is. Um, here's what I chose for us this morning. We, ben read it for us already out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. We are called deeply loved sojourners and exiles. Those words, deeply loved, that's family language. We're deeply loved or beloved sons and daughters. And so what Peter's saying is the DNA of our dad is, is to show up in the DNA of our family. So this is who we are. Our dad loves righteousness. We are to be a family who loves righteousness. Our dad loves justice. We are to be a family that is known for loving, loving, not just talking about it, but loving justice. This is who we are. We're deeply loved sons and daughters who, who our father calls sojourners and exiles. Now, Peter here is writing to churches that are scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia Minor. They were persecuted. They were living a very difficult existence. And so the question they had that Peter answers over and over and over again in the letter is, how do we live in this broken culture and in light of our, our, the hardships that we experience? And what does Peter do? He points them to their identity first. He points them who, to who God the Father is and points them to, to, our, to their identity in light of who their, our Father is. So how should we live? That's our question. How do we live? How do we respond in justice? Identity first. Our Father's identity and then our own. So let's look at this. Sojourners and exiles. Those two words taken together simply mean a foreigner or a temporary resident. I am a sojourner or exile in Japan. My wife and I, my family and I immigrated. We have green cards. So our residency here is secondary, but our ultimate citizenship is back in the United States. We're here temporarily for a specific mission. Sometime we will go back home. We're sojourners and exiles. What Peter's saying is when he uses these terms... We, we all have a nationality, we all have an ethnicity, we all have a citizenship, but as citizens of God's kingdom, all of these citizenships, all these identities that we have on earth are secondary, so our primary allegiance is to God, our primary citizenship is in his kingdom, our primary affection is for him, it's primary, everything else is secondary. And then the gospel adds a missional dimension. When we see the words sojourners and exiles, we are reminded that we are sent as a family into a specific time and place by our Father for the good of others. Some of you are thinking, John, man, there's so many identity statements in Scripture. Why in the world would we start with this one, uh, sojourners and exiles? That's a good question. The reason I want to start here as it relates to racial injustice is because this particular identity statement has often been used by Christians to create distance between injustice in our world and our own Christian community. Or in other words, we use this identity to alleviate some of the burden of needing to pay attention to or lean into or address or work against the injustices in this world. Well, how? What do I mean by that? 
Here's one of the primary ways we, we as Christians tend to do that with this identity, and it's what I call over-sojournism, or over-realizing this identity that we are sojourners and exiles. Growing up in the church, I was familiar with this hymn, and the words went like this, this world is just my, or this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Anybody sing that song growing up? All right, I'm just passing through. Really? Like, are we sure about that? That's all we're doing here. We're just passing through and nothing more. That's not what the Bible says, guys. The world may not be our home, but we are not just passing through. One time I landed back in Okinawa and I threw a social media post up. You know, you got to do it. You catch the airplane and you're like, I'm home. And uh, so I was going home to see my family after being gone for a long time. And, and a Christian with an overrealized sense of sojournism wrote immediately on my thread and said, you're not home, John. No Christian is at home in this world. Your home is in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm like, no, no, that's not true. My ultimate allegiance is there, but my father's given me a home here in Okinawa and my family is here and he calls us to something here. We're not just passing through. Over sojournism leads to this idea that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, so I just need to get my kids, my wife, my dog, uh, disengage, disconnect, be disinterested, and just protect and hang in there until Jesus gets back. And okay, fine, like I'll lob some gospel hand grenades from out behind my bunker because I know I have to share the gospel, but that's it. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. That's over-sojournism. That's an over-realized Identity of being a sojourner. Over-sojournism contributes to racial injustice because it leads to disinterest, disconnectivity, and disengagement, and it leads to inaction. So when we over-realize that identity of sojourner, we actually contribute to the perpetuation of racial injustices in our broken kingdoms. There's another extreme, we can call it under-sojournism. It's when we under-realize that gospel identity so we don't live into the reality of our identity. And what should be primary, our citizenship in heaven becomes secondary, and what should be secondary is primary, our national identity or our racial identity, our ethnic identity. And so as Christians then, if we're not living into our identity as sojourners, we're in the culture, but we're, we're not different, we're not distinct. There's nothing beautiful about the culture of the church. And Tony Evans, in his book, Oneness Embraced, wrote about that this way. For white Christians in America, he says, for far too long, Anglo-Christians have wrapped the Christian faith in the American flag, often creating a civil religion that is foreign to the way that God intended his church to function. And guys, whenever we do that with anything, whether it's our American identity, your military service, it doesn't matter. Whatever identity we wrap that in, which becomes primary over the gospel, our under-realized gospel identity will contribute to the perpetuation of racial injustice in our broken kingdoms. In these two sermons, I want to work to challenge our over-sojournism and our under-sojournism as we explore God's design for us as his sojourning family. We are called to love and to do justice in an unjust world. And how does God desire for his family to live as sojourners? We don't want to over-realize that identity. We don't want to under-realize it. Where, how does God want us to live into this identity? Well, we heard it read in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which wage war against your soul. Peter, look, he's, he's still going after that uh, gospel kingdom idea. We have a new king now. I'm no longer my king. And so I'm not, I don't live enslaved to the impulses of my heart or the impulses of my mind. I submit all of those things to my new king, Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then he goes on, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We see at least two ideas here. Um, I'm going to be a preacher and show you a third, but we see at least two. Um, Here's the first idea. Sojourners are a present people. Sojourners are present. Notice that Peter says, your conduct where? Among among the Gentiles, not apart from the Gentiles, not in your cul-de-sac or in your bunker, but among the Gentiles. So no over-sojournism allowed by the gospel among the Gentiles, among non-Christians. So sojourners are present. The second idea is sojourners practice good work for God's fame and human flourishing. Sojourners practice good work for God's fame and human flourishing. Peter goes on to say, these people should be able to see your good deeds. Again, they can see because our lives are lived out among, not apart from. And in seeing our good deeds, the good deeds that we're working on behalf of other people for their flourishing, they're led to glorify our Father. So Peter's saying sojourners are present and sojourners practice good works for God's fame and for human flourishing. Uh, The additional idea that I wanted to show you is actually back up in verse 9, which we didn't read. In verse 9, Peter says, we were not a people before, we weren't part of God's family, we're part of God's family, and here's the reason, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, so that you may brag on your father, you may tell the good and beautiful gospel story. So sojourners proclaim good news. We're present, we practice good works, and we proclaim good news for God's fame and for human flourishing. And here's what I want you to see. Here's what we have to see. Peter's not just making this stuff up because he's got to write a letter. This stuff is all anchored way back in the beginning in the creation narrative in Genesis 1, 26, where Ben started our reading off this morning. And in Genesis chapter 1, from verse 26 to 28, we learn that we are created in the image of God or the imago Dei. The Imago Dei is a big idea, right? It's a big idea. And we don't have time to draw out all the implications. Here's, here are two that we need to see. We're going to focus on equality of personhood and what the Imago Dei has to say about how we live as sojourners. So let's start with dignity of personhood. John Perkins writes, Dignity comes from God, and God has already given it to everyone when he created us in his image. So we don't give dignity to other people. It's not ours to give. We affirm dignity in other people, a dignity that has already been placed there because every single person, no matter of ethnicity, race, it doesn't matter, every single person has been created in the Imago Dei, and that imparts a beauty of dignity, a dignity of personhood. We don't give it, we affirm it. So sojourners then... How do we live? We practice the affirmation of dignity in in other people, and we do so gladly and without reservation. What does this mean for us in our cultural climate today? It means that followers of Jesus should have been the first to say black lives matter. It should have been our phrase before it was anyone else's. Sojourners gladly affirm this, this truth. 
But some would say, wait, John, don't all lives matter? And creation would tell us what? Yes, all lives matter. But guys, we live in a particular culture with a very potent history. A very potent history. And so it's important for us as sojourners in this American context that we can gladly and willingly affirm that black lives matter without condition because of our history. Because in our history, through the trafficking, slavery, segregation, and Jim Crow, and on and on and on, our culture screamed, black lives do not matter. That's what it screamed, okay? And historically, the church in America, through our complicity, which we'll examine later, or our silence, our silence all through the civil, civil rights era, and overwhelming silence and disengagement, we also screamed, or said with our mouth closed, black lives don't matter. And what about today? Many remain silent. Many are uncomfortable saying those words. Some actively argue against the phrase. But guys, sojourners affirm without condition because it's simply just a truth deeply rooted in the creation narrative. Black lives matter. And while Imago Dei certainly speaks to the intrinsic worth of all people, the author actually here seems to be more concerned with purpose, right? So we got dignity of personhood and sojourners affirm But now we need to look at how being created in the Imago Dei relates to life as a sojourner in our broken kingdom. And we're going to do that by looking at the, uh, in verse 26, where it says we're created in his image after his likeness. What does that mean? Likeness means with similarity, but not exactly the same. Very much like. We're not gods, but we're created like God. So we, we ourselves are not gods. We are created in God's image. And to be that word image in the ancient languages uh, referred to something that was cut out, like something cut out of rock, a statue, or quite frankly, an idol, something that was used to image a deity. And that's what God is saying of us. We, we are created as a representation of who he is. So as image bearers, we are created to have relationship with him and to represent him to others for his fame and for human flourishing. We could say it this way. We are made like God to relate with him and to represent him for the flourishing of others. When we are in right relationship with God, sojourners represent him for the flourishing of other people. There are three aspects of that representation in the creation account. We see presence, we see practice of good work, And we see proclamation. Where did we just see those? Three. Peter. See, he's not making it up. This is consistent through the entire narrative of Scripture. Presence, practice, and proclamation. Sojourners are present. They practice good works for God's fame and and for human flourishing. And they proclaim a beautiful story, the good news of the gospel. So let's look at presence. God says to Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's just saying... Uh, There are two of you as representatives right now, but we're going to need a whole lot more. We're going to fill the earth with representatives. Mankind should be present everywhere, serving as representatives, a presence that points back to the goodness of our creator whose image we bear. Guys, this is relational. This is a relational presence. We, We have to understand this. We can't live for God's fame and flourishing of others without a relational presence. Without integration, we cannot live this way. So there's presence. 
And then there's the practicing of good works for God's fame and human flourishing. God says, you're going to have dominion over all the earth and over every creeping thing on the earth. And in verse 28, he says, you guys are going to subdue the earth. And what he's saying is Adam and Eve were to rule over creation with a delegated authority from God himself. And when, I, when you think of that delegated authority, think stewardship, not exploitation. We're not exploiting the earth for our advantage. We're stewarding the earth with care for its flourishing, but also for the flourishing of other people. So we're created to work on behalf of God for the good of mankind. Now, theologians have to name everything, so there's a name for this. It's called the cultural mandate. Okay, this, that creation account, that, that, those commands that Adam and Eve receive... That's known as the cultural mandate. It was given to them, but it's given to all of us. It's, it's for all of us. We are given authority and responsibility for the purpose of representing God on this earth for human flourishing. Why do you exist? Here's like, guys, one of your greatest questions in life is answered this morning. Why have you been given life? You have been given life to relate with God and to represent him on earth for his fame and for the good of others, for human flourishing. That's why you have life. All right, but how do we do that? Like, what does that look like? In creation, what did God do? God worked, right? He was the first worker. And in creation, God brought something out of nothing. He brought order out of chaos for human flourishing. He created, his work was life-giving and life-sustaining. He created a place to live. He created food to eat. He created beauty to be enjoyed. He created language and community and culture. God created equity and justice. So to be created in his image means that we are workers who will work like he works and like he worked. So we do creative work. We do ordering work. We bring order out of chaos. We give ourselves to being life-giving and to doing life-sustaining things, not just for our families, but for the communities where we live. This is what we are created for. God calls us to keep watch over and to cultivate and to preserve and to build upon what he has already created. God created good, and workers are created by him to steward that good for his fame and for human flourishing. You could say in this creation account, God created systemic justice and systemic equity. And he calls us then as his image bearers to be those who would perpetuate systemic justice and the beauty of equity. That's what we're created for and called to. And there was the third piece, proclamation. This is a beautiful piece, but we can't camp out here very long. Adam received words from God. God spoke blessings over him in creation, and then Adam spoke blessing over God's creation. And the first blessing he spoke was to his bride. So guys, if you need lessons, we can learn from our father Adam in this way. He spoke at his marriage. It's poetry. It's a song. He probably sang to her when he saw her. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam spoke life-giving poetry into his wife's life for her flourishing. And that pattern is meant to be perpetuated through all of creation. We take Adam's lead, not just with our family members, but with people around us. Guys, this is why we exist as Christians. We, we have the privilege of telling a better story. We speak God's blessing into the lives of people around us for their flourishing and for God's fame. For, the, for their flourishing. So sojourners are present. Sojourners practice good works for God's fame and the good of others. And sojourners proclaim the beauty of the gospel. 
I've got to be honest, um, I, over the last month or so, I've grown really weary of all the credit given to Karl Marx. And what I, all I mean is, like, I've been reading some books because I have some serious gaps in my learning. Like, I need to learn, I need, I need to keep learning, but I've, been, I've read a lot. And so I've just been trying to share books that I've read and been encouraged by. And I, I never knew I was a Marxist until I started sharing certain titles. And some of my friends are like, John, we, we didn't, you're a Marxist. And, uh, and I'm like, no, you're, you're giving him way too much credit. Guys, the cultural mandate that we see in creation predates Marx by thousands of years. Do you know how late he was to the, to the party? Like the, 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 create, the cultural mandate predates him by thousands of years. And so the cultural mandate compels Christians to care. The cultural mandate compels Christians to act. The cultural mandate compels Christians to work for equity and to work for the flourishing of African Americans in, in a culture where for hundreds of years everything worked against their flourishing. Not Karl Marx, but a cultural mandate from God himself. Not critical race theory, but creation responsibility theory, if we want to call it that. Not communism, that was the label thrown out in the 70s, it's evolved to just straight up Marxism now. Not communism, but creationism. Not Karl Marx, Marx. we're just talking mere Christianity, where justice and equity are a beautiful baseline starting point. Not the end game, the starting point. But guys, things like critical race theory and all this, all this stuff about Marxism, that's being spoken into a void in our culture right now. And so then when Christians try to pop their heads up and start trying to tell the better story of the gospel, they're like, oh, you're a Marxist too, or you subscribe to critical race theory, or on and on and on. But guys, all of those things, CRT and cultural Marxism, all of it is speaking into a void. And you know where that void came from? That void was created by the absence of sojourners telling the better story. And so our culture is just trying to tell a good story, but it's so imperfect and it's so weak. Our job is to tell the better story. And by God's common grace, maybe many people in the CRT camps or Marxist camps have stumbled upon elements of God's common grace. So I'm not embarrassed if there's any overlap, but all, all the truth belongs to God himself. And we exist to tell the better story. So what should that look like for us in our broken kingdoms? Uh, Jeremiah gives us a glimpse. God's people had rebelled. They were failing to live into the sojourner identity. It was underrealized for them. And so their culture was rampant with social injustice. We'll see that right here in Jeremiah 7, verses 5 to 6, where God had to show up to him and say, you need to repent. You need to amend your ways and your deeds. Execute justice with one another. Do not oppress the sojourner or the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. And you need to stop going after other gods to your own harm. But they didn't. They had an underrealized sojourner identity. Um, and so God judged them and he sent them into exile to Babylon. But even in judgment, the father reminds them, you're still my sojourning family and you're still created to practice presence and practice good works for my fame and human flourishing and proclamation. Check this out. This is what Ben read for us in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I want you to build houses. I want you to live in them. I want you to plant gardens, and I want you to eat their produce. I want you to take wives and have sons and daughters. I want you to take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. I want you to have grandkids. 
uh, that, there may, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't decrease. Don't disengage. Don't pull back. Live life. And in your living, look at this command, guys. This is what we're called to as sojourners. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. That's amazingly beautiful. Seek the, the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Guys, we see presence. We see God saying to his family, I know your tendencies. No, no hyper-sojournism this time. No over-realized sojournism. I want you to settle down. I want you to live long. I want you to sink roots. I want you to build a house and make a home. Yes, you can post on social media that Okinawa is your home. Whatever place I PCS into, you into, you make that place your home. You own it. And you invest there. You invest in the economy. And you invest in the lives of people. Practice presence. Live life. Get married. Have children. Coach Little League. Join clubs. Be part of the community. Plant your gardens. And eat the produce and share the produce for the good of other people. Participate in the life of your city. Practice good work for my fame and for human flourishing. He says, I want you to seek the welfare of the city. That's an active command. Guys, when we wonder what, what should we be doing, what, what is our response as sojourners? Seek the welfare of the people in the city where I've placed you. That word welfare from, comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Most of us don't know very much Hebrew at all, but we've probably all heard that word shalom. It's peace. It speaks of a comprehensive peace. Shalom is well-being, it's contentment. It's wholeness, it's health, it's prosperity, it's safety, it's rest, it's order, it's harmony, it's happiness. It's a big, big term. God's saying, I want you to seek all of those things for the people of the city in which you live. I want you to, to care that everything is right for all the kinds of people in your city, for everyone in the city. He's saying, family, you are sojourners who are to do anything and everything to further the public good for all the people in the city. That's not Marxism. That's just a straw man. That is the cultural mandate being lived out by God's sojourning people. And we are not going to allow lesser voices to rob the beautiful story from God's sojourning people. We live into it without shame and without embarrassment. It's beautiful. So we practice good for God's fame and human flourishing. And we, we proclaim True peace is only known in reconciliation with God. So if we're going to seek the peace of the city, if we're going to seek the welfare of the people around us, it has to include proclamation of the gospel. We have to tell the good news of the God who rescues us in spite of our rebellion. But listen, here's what we have to understand. Most, there's this tendency for us now to just say, um, that's the only one that we focus on. We just focus on the proclamation. We say things like, just preach the gospel. Guys, that is under-realized sojournism. We, yes, we preach the gospel, but in preaching the gospel, we also practice the gospel, good works, and we also practice presence shaped by the gospel. What an incredible reputation as a family. That is, that, is a, that is a compelling reputation for any family and such an attractive and winsome, beautiful thing. But when it comes to the church in America... That has not been our reputation, particularly as it relates to equity and justice and flourishing for African Americans. Historically, 
the church has not been present practicing good for God's fame and the flourishing of African Americans or proclaiming gospel implications into all the injustice in our culture. Why not? What went wrong? Well, if we kept pressing in Genesis, we kind of covered a little bit of ground in one and two, and two into three would tell us the sad story of our rebellion, where a just world becomes filled with injustice. Injustice. The injustice began in our hearts, and the root of all injustice is rebellion from God Himself. That is the root for all injustice. So the seeds of injustice were sown into the hearts of Adam and Eve and by implication, every one of us. And then the seeds of systemic injustice were planted in the broken soil of the Garden of Eden. And from that point forward, evidences of systemic injustice sprouted into the hearts of every human being, every image bearer, and every culture that we are a part of. Every heart and every culture has been infected. So guys, we need to step back from this. Like We have to be able to wrestle with the text of Scripture honestly because in Christian circles, we are far too quick to dismiss. We don't even, look, I talk to so many people who don't even like the term. And when we do start talking about it, rather than acknowledging, we actually defend and we say, well, that's not systemic or that's not injustice. But guys, the creation narrative is telling us that systemic injustice exists in our hearts and in our culture. And so sojourners don't wonder if so, uh, systemic injustice exists. Sojourners don't deny. Sojourners ask where it exists. And sojourners learn to admit, wow, I didn't see that before. I don't know why I didn't see it before, but I just, I'm glad you told me or pointed that out to me or shared your experience. I just have not seen that before. Because, guys, the wisest man who ever lived, he was the wisest king who ever lived, he wrote this passage in Ecclesiastes 3.16. Here's, here's what he said. He said, moreover, and look at the verb. What's the verb? See. I, I see it. I saw it. And our whole thing is, man, we don't see it. Show me systemic injustice. I don't see it. Well, he saw it, and this was a very long time ago. He saw under the sun that in the place of justice, where there should have been beautiful systemic justice and equity, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. That is systemic injustice in the hearts of people and deeply entrenched into every culture, so deeply entrenched that we don't necessarily have the eyes to see it apart from the gospel. But the Father gives us, as his sojourners, eyes to see, not lips to deny. And so we need to understand as it relates to racial injustice Guys, there is only, so just so we're all tracking, make sure we're understanding this, there is only one race, right? We're all on the same page with this. Like all, any serious scholar, like this is, a, this is a biblical truth, but it's also a scientific scholarly truth. So any serious scholar will agree there's only one race. There's only one blood flowing through the veins of every human being, every, every image bearer. We're all part of the human race, one race. Race then you're like, where does that come from then? It's a social construct. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means it is a social construct. Societies come up with categories for people and we place them in these categories. 
Uh, John Perkins talks about it this way. He says, race as we know it today is mostly a social theory that was devised and refined over centuries to serve, here, here, here's why, right here. This is in our brokenness of rebellion, to serve the economic and religious goals of a majority culture. And Jamar Tisby in his book, Color of Compromise, kind of continues with this, this thought. He says, guys, like, let's just be real here. There's no biological basis for the superiority or inferiority of any human being based on the amount of melanin in, his, in her or his skin. The development of the idea of race required the intentional actions of people in the social, political, and religious spheres to decide that skin color determined who would be enslaved and who would be free. Because we see that clearly in our American history. If we don't, we're denying real history. And sadly, Tisby goes on to say, Christianity served as a force to help construct racial categories and to perpetuate racial, racist systems. Now that makes us very uncomfortable. And our first instinct is to say, no, it didn't, no, we didn't, and no, I don't. But can... Can we just talk about a little bit of our family history right now? Would that be okay? Like, let's just, just a real quick survey of some of our family history. And, and, and listen, we're not talking about the culture right now. We're talking about Christians, churches, our family history. Let's review just a little bit. Historians all agree there would be no black church without racism in the white church. The first black denomination came into existence in America in 1787. That was the AME Zion Church. A guy named Richard Allen, who was a freed slave, he purchased his freedom. He purchased his freedom. He joined St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in my favorite city, Philadelphia. Blacks and whites worshipped together in this church. Well, to the extent that blacks and whites worship together in any church in America at this point in history. A seating was segregated. They had separate prayer times. White, black people were not permitted to come down front and play, pray when white people were, 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 were praying. It was very segregated. Uh, one of these guys wanted to be sent out as a church planner, actually, by this church. And the church denied his request only because he was, he was black. So Allen became frustrated with the limitations that the church placed on him and the other black parishioners limitations that included segregating pews, and so he left the church and he founded the AME uh, Episcopal Church. There would be no black church without racism in the white church. Segregation and equality defined most of American Christianity. The church's complicity with racism was not just a southern problem, but an American one. We need to be clear on that because oftentimes all the blame is laid at the, at, at the south's feet. It, is a, it was an American stain. It was uh, maybe less visible in the north, but it was, it was culture-wide, not just in the south. One pastor in Virginia wrote, to live in Virginia without slaves is morally impossible. This was a sermon given from his pulpit. A moral impossibility to live in Virginia without a black person as your slave. Another pastor, many of you will know this name, George Whitfield, wanted to start an orphanage in Georgia. And did you know that Georgia was actually uh, founded as a as a free state, as a free territory. But he writes, one Negro has been given to me, he wrote this in a letter, some more I plan to purchase this week. And so Whitfield began petitioning the political leaders of Georgia, which had been founded as a free territory, so that they would allow slavery. And under a pastor's influence, Georgia became a slave-holding state. 
Jonathan Edwards, many of you know his name. By 1731, Edwards had purchased his first enslaved African by the name of Venus and at an auction, at an auction in Rhode Island. And then throughout his lifetime, he owned several other people, including Joseph Lee and a young boy named Titus. Guys, during that era of history, 1,200 Methodist pastors were slaveholders. To be a pastor in the Methodist church was to be a slaveholder. From 1846 through the Civil War, every bishop in the Methodist Episcopal Church was a slaveholder. Charles Finney was one of the most outspoken abolitionists, but he was not a proponent of black equality. And that's what we lose in our history, though there were many voices for abolition. Almost none of those voices for abolition were actually proponents of black equality. They either wanted to send blacks back to Air Africa or they wanted a separate and segregated society. But even Christian abolitionists were not preaching the Imago Dei and the dignity of personhood, at least not in the majority. Black people could become members of his church, but they could not vote or hold office. In the 1900s, it's estimated that 40,000 pastors were members of the KKK. You did hear that number, right? Did you hear the number? 40,000. Again, we're not talking about our culture. We're talking about the culture of people who are supposed to be sojourners in this broken kingdom. 40,000 pastors were members of the KKK. When the KKK kind of had to rebrand and repackage, uh, they actually made it a requirement that you had to be a follower of Jesus. You had to be a Christian in order to be a member of the clan. They went together. Famous names like Moody, Billy, Sunday, and Billy Graham all practiced segregation at revivals, though history would bear out that Graham would change and repent and be so remorseful and would interact with Martin Luther King and preach uh, for the equality of those who were non-white. And while some Christians spoke out and denounced lynchings, just as some Christians called for abolition, the majority stance of the American church was avoidance and turning a blind eye to the practice. It's not that members, one historian wrote, it's not that members of every white church participated in lynching, obviously, but the practice could not have endured without the relative silence, if not outright support, of one of the most significant institutions in America, and that is the Christian church. That's a secular historian making that observation. In more recent times, we have terms like white flight, and one historian describes white flight. He said, churches actively participated in the racial relocation of whites from the city to other locations. Here's a quote. In many cases, churches not only failed to inhibit white flight, but actually became co-conspirators and accomplices in the action. One pastor in Kirkwood, Georgia, along with a whole bunch of church leaders in this area, actively urged their members not to sell their homes to black people. This is my parents' generation now. We're this, we're this recent. And they wrote in their letter, uh, this was published, it said, if everyone simply refuses to sell to colored, pastors wrote, then everything will be fine. They pleaded with church members, please help us keep Kirkwood white and preserve our churches and homes. Guys, we're not talking about the culture, we're talking about our family. This is our family history. Churches shut their doors or fled to all-white suburbs, and today many of these communities remain almost as racially segregated now as they were then. One historian observed precious few Christians publicly aligned themselves with the struggle for black freedom in the 50s and 60s. The American church responded to much of the civil rights movement with passivity, indifference, or even outright opposition. But we say we're different now 
And Eric, Eric Mason wrote this in his book. He said, man, we understand that family history has a deep impact on the life of a person. We get it. My personal family history has deeply shaped who I am as a man. Now, none of us deny that. But, he says, it blows my mind that in American Christianity today, we behave as though our familial past has nothing to do with our present. It's disturbing how dismissive my evangelical brethren can be toward the past and its impact on where we are today with respect to race in this country and in the church. And it grieves me that there is an unwillingness to go there. Guys, as a family of sojourners, we have to be willing to go there. We have to be able to talk about what haunts our family, and we cannot be dismissive. And just because our family failed in the past does not mean we need to fail in the present or in the future. But to a large degree, the church in America is still failing. Christians today remain divided along racial lines. It was once said that Sunday at 11 a.m. in America is still the most segregated of times. And this charge was made against the church in the 50s, but sadly it is still true today. About 90% of African Americans attend predominantly black congregations, and at least 95% of white Americans, probably higher, attend predominantly white churches. Guys, that's not just an idea or a theory. It's true, and look around the room. It's even true here in Okinawa. We could list all the churches on this island that represent the American population here, and without a problem, we could say that is a majority white church, that's a black church, white church, black church, white church, black church. Our workplaces in the secular culture are more integrated than our churches are. Our communities are more integrated than our churches are. We cannot deny that our family's history has impacted who we are in the present. Russell Moore wrote this. He said, Martin Luther King is relatively non-controversial in American Christian life now. It's because Martin Luther King has not been speaking for 50 years. He's dead. So it's easy to look backward and say, if I had been here, I would have listened to MLK, even though right now we really don't look around and listen to what's going on in our own community, our own neighborhood, and our own church, and engage with presence, practice of good works for God's fame and the flourishing of others, and the proclamation of good news. So remember G.K. Chesterton's quote that we started with? He said, man, it's not that we can't see the solution, it's that we can't see the problem. Perkins would go on to say, I believe this statement can be applied to the lack of reconciliation within the church today. We have not been able to arrive at the solution because we haven't seen or we haven't been willing to acknowledge the problem. Guys, family, we have to be willing to see and acknowledge the problem. We must ask not if this history is still affecting us. We have to be able to ask how this history is still affecting us today. And as we slowly learn how, our learning needs to lead us to lamenting. Remember when we started at the beginning and Eric Mason from his church, he warned the church, he's like, don't start with pragmatics. So we're not going to. I don't have a list of things for us to do to seek justice. Again, we will be more solution-oriented next week. This week, it is for us to see and to learn and to lament. We need to be able to lament And what do we lament? Well, we can lament our family history. We can lament the fact that the black church had to be created. We can lament the fact that the founding of the first black denomination came from a refusal to accept black people in the church as equal in every respect. We can lament the reality of white churches and black churches here in Okinawa. 
We can lament how our disunity distorts the beauty of the gospel. We should lament not lamenting. We should lament not having eyes to see the problem. I have had to lament all of these and more. I have had to lament not knowing enough of our family history to lament. I've had to do so much reading just to increase my awareness so that I know to lament and know what to lament. I just have four book recommendations that I've, I've recently finished, and um, two of them I have on Kindle, but two I have here in person, and so the, whoever makes it to the front first can have my copies because I have all my notes. The first is Divided by Faith. It's a great entry point into the conversation. And the second is Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. This afternoon on Kindle, you could download John Perkins' One Blood, or uh, I also quoted from Evan's book titled Oneness Embraced. So you can read and we can listen to real people. A couple weeks ago, I sat down with John Booth, a member of our church family, and Joseph Cavett, a good friend of mine here on the island. And we recorded a conversation that we entitled Through Our Eyes. And I just asked both of these men a bunch of questions to ask about their experience as black men growing up in our culture and growing up or spending time in majority white churches. And we will make that conversation available to you uh, very early this week. It's recorded and online. We need to learn to lament how our over-sojournism has contributed to and perpetuated inequity and injustice. We can lament how our under-sojournism has contributed to and perpetuated inequity and injustice. We can lament not seeking the welfare of our city as it relates to racial justice, equity, and the flourishing of African Americans. We can lament where we have not been present relationally. We can lament where we've not been practicing good works for God's fame and the flourishing of African Americans. We can lament where we have not been proclaiming the truth of the gospel as it relates to equity and justice. We can lament our silence. Martin Luther King said, in the end, we don't remember the words of our enemies. We will remember the silence of our friends. And for some of us, we need to lament the silence that has existed in our lives. Eric Mason wrote this. He says, why do I lament? The reason I lament this is because the church should have been the leader of this movement. He's saying the affirmation that black lives matter in the church and in the culture He said, Christians of all ethnicities should have entered their pulpits and gone to war in the fight for black lives, both in these instances and holistically. Instead, we argued and minimized these events, and so now we are dealing with schism, and our witness to the broader world has suffered in large part because of our silent and inaction. He's basically saying, because of our silence and inaction, our voice rings hollow now when we try to speak into this cultural brokenness. So our first step is not to speak and do. Our first step is to lament, and hopefully some of our lament will re- lead to confession. Some of us need to lament our fear of speaking up. Some of us need to lament our ongoing passivity, indifference, or even outright opposition. Guys, I have so much to lament. What about you? What about you? Next week, we will press into what it looks like for us to be present, how to practice good work, and how to proclaim gospel implications as it relates to racial justice and equity. So we'll be very solution-driven next week. But for this week, I just want to invite you into seven days of lamenting. And for many, I think here's what we'll find. If we are willing in our sincere lament, if we will sincerely lament I think we will find that our hearts will slowly open to the idea of personal confession where the Holy Spirit shows us that confession is necessary. 
Not where cultural guilt or cultural shame would suggest you should confess. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But as we actively lament what is lamentable, and the Holy Spirit leads us to pinpoint areas of confession in your own life, like he has for me, that we respond to the Holy Spirit with humility and we confess. Genesis 3 foretells of rescue that Jesus would be the only perfect sojourner, that Jesus would rescue rebels one at a time, he would comfort us in our lament, and he would show grace and forgiveness to us in our confession. So Jesus reorients us and then he sends us out as a sojourning people. So guys, just because our family failed in the past and we need to lament does not mean that we need to fail in the present or fail in the future. So let's go to Jesus with our lament this week. Let's go to Jesus with our confessions so that we can be sent out by Jesus as his sojourning people, living for his fame and for the flourishing of our African-American brothers and sisters in our culture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we could spend in your word. Help us to respond appropriately now in humility and grace. Father, as Kyle comes and leads us as a family to respond, pray that you would quiet our hearts so that we would hear the work of the Holy Spirit and that every one of us would be inclined to respond by faith, not motivated by guilt or shame, but motivated by the beauty of your gospel and your grace. All right, now is the time in our service where we respond to the message we have. So would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we come before you, many of us, and myself included, lamenting the fact that I, I just found out what, what lamenting really meant recently, God. And that it's, it hasn't been a, a part of our family history in the church often. Uh, Lord, knowing, and if anyone here doesn't know, that it, it's often associated with mourning and doing so through words, often wailing. Um, God, that you actually call your people to lament, not because it's going to lead to immediate change, but because it's going to form us more and more into the image of Jesus when he himself also was one who lamented. God, I just ask that we would push into that, that we would push into recognizing the areas in our family history in the church and in our personal family histories where injustice has been perpetuated, whether it's through conversations at the dinner table, whether it's, God, in, in conversations with people at work, or whether it's in what we've done to others or what we failed to do for others, whether it's been in what we've said to others or what we have failed to say. God, when it comes to just perpetuating injustice, I ask that you would forgive us. And Lord, I lament the fact that it is a reality that we've, we've had to, we've just perpetuated. And God, as we continue growing in this area, I ask that your spirit would just uh, point us to the truth and the gospel, that in our identity, uh, our baptismal identity, we are adopted in children of God. And whether or not our skin color is of a certain hue, God, it doesn't matter. We are all your children. And God, I thank you for the grace that's shown to us in Jesus, that when we've perpetuated injustice or whether we've sinned or whether we failed to live into the image you created us into, 
God, that, you, that forgiveness is ours. And so we confess, Lord, we thank you for forgiveness, and we thank you that you've sent us out to serve as uh, sojourners, God, to serve as Jesus served and to be empowered by your spirit to do so, to go into our cities, to live for the good and flourishing of our neighbors. And God, uh, specifically forgive us for when we've over-sojourned, when we've tried to remove ourselves from the discomfort of pressing into the problems that we think we're separate from just because we confess Christ. Forgive us for that, and also forgive us for prioritizing other identities over our Christian identity. God, our, our racial identity, if you would, or our, our national identity, or maybe our political or our economic identity, when we've, when we've raised those above our image-bearing, or when we've raised those over our Christian identity, we've preached a message that isn't true. God, and would you forgive us for that too? And I thank you for just the hope that we have in Christ, that you will see your church formed into his image. God, and I thank you for the hope that we have to look forward to in the future. Amen. Now we're going to enter into a time of communion. Uh, here at Pillar, we do communion every week, mainly because we need to remember what Jesus has done for us. When we uh, take the bread, Jesus said it was his body and he broke it to represent how he would be broken for us. And he told his disciples to take and eat. And so every week we take and eat. And the juice represents his blood. Uh, Jesus said it would be poured out for the sins of many. And uh, guys, that's, that's why we do this, to remember his blood shed on our behalf. And we do it as one family because he didn't do it just for individuals. He did it for his bride, the church. And if you are a part of that church today, meaning you have confessed Christ as your Lord, that you've received that identity, then I invite you to the table as a family. What we'll do is we'll come through the center aisle. Uh, we have options on the right and on the left. It's an interesting time in COVID season. We have little cups that have a cracker on top just to keep everything separate. If you need a gluten option, uh, there is a gluten-free option on this side. Uh, so please uh, just take this time to reflect and come when you're ready.
Would you guys join me in song? Sing Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Bearing shame and scoffing in my place, condemned he stood, he sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Hallelujah, what a Savior, hallelujah. 
Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. So let worship be the fuel for missions flame. Let worship be the fuel for missions flame. We're going with a passion for your name. We're going for we care about your praise. Send us out. Let worship be the heart of missions aim. To see the nations recognize your fame. Till every tribe and tongue voices your praise, send us out. You should be the praise. And you should be the praise of every tongue. And you should be the joy of every heart. But until the fullness of your kingdom comes And until that final revelation dawns Send us out Let worship be the fuel for missions flame we're going with a passion for your name. We're going for we care about your praise. Send us out. And you should be the praise of every tongue. And you should be the joy of every hearts but until the fullness of your kingdom comes and until that final revelation dawns send us out see every tribe Every tribe, every tongue, every creature in the heavens and the earth, every heart, every soul will sing your praise, will sing your praise. Every note, every strain, every melody will be for you alone. 
Every harmony that flows from every tongue will sing your praise. We'll sing your praise. We'll sing your praise. We'll sing your praise. And you should be the praise of every tongue. And you should be the joy of every heart. But until the fullness of your kingdom comes, and until that final revelation dawns, send us out, send us out, send us out, send us out. Amen. All right. So, family, as we get ready to leave, that's a hopeful song to leave with, ringing in our ears. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, he will finally eradicate every injustice, and perfect systemic justice and equity will be known again, and it'll be beautiful. Until that time, we just sang, we are God's sojourning people. We are sent out, and what does that look like? It's as simple as this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from America to Okinawa, loose translation, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and, we'll take one, and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, live life that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Guys, just because our family failed yesterday does not mean that our family has to fail today. We can be God's sojourning people. Thank you for worshiping Jesus with us this morning. Go in grace and go in peace. I love you, family.